Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, welcome. Glad to be with with you and glad that we can be together this morning. Um, just just by way of a reminder, um, we, are, we are always happy for children to be in our service with us. We are always glad to uh, hear uh, little sounds and squeaks and quacks or whatever other noises they might make. Um, but, but particularly this morning with no nursery, um, parents, your, your kids are, are kids and we expect them to be kids. Um, and if uh, you feel the need to you know, step out with your kids because they're being maybe too kid-like, um, the, the, uh, the service is being broadcast into the gathering area, so you're free to do either, but, but I want you to know we are glad for our children to be with us. Um, and this morning, we're looking uh, at 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, we're continuing in our series in 1 Samuel, and uh, you can find that passage on page 232 of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Um, and it is good for us to be together, um, even in smaller numbers. It's good for us to come to God's word and, and be able to sing and to pray because uh, it is in God's word and it is in the gathering of his people that we are reminded of what Andrew already prayed, that the Lord reigns, that there is nothing that uh, can remove Jesus from his heavenly throne, that he sits upon it even right now. And that, that is a good reminder for us in times of concern or uncertainty, in times of worry, also in times of celebration and joy. And we have good reason to trust our Lord. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. We're going to see signs of why we can trust our God. Now, as we ended last week, uh, as we ended the passage last week, we were introduced to this new character, Saul. This was the first time we had seen him so far in the book of 1 Samuel, and our passage ended in chapter 9 with Samuel telling Saul to send his servants ahead, and as he did so, Samuel would present to Saul the word of God. And then in chapter 10, we now have this word coming through Samuel to Saul. And so let's go ahead and follow along, 1 Samuel 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. 
Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to, burn, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to, set to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the, the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clans of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word gives us comfort. It gives us peace. It leads us in the way that we are to go. It leads us away from destruction and sin. And so we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would lead us. That you would lead us by your word so that the words of my mouth would honor you. And so that the meditations of our hearts would please you. For you are God and our King. And we pray in your name. Amen. So most of you know, and you know this because I've told you this <laughs> from up here, that uh, the last number of years I've been working and, and uh, seeking to reclaim my backyard. My backyard, when I first bought the house, was sloped. It was on a hillside. There were trees and woods. And, 
and all sorts of forest-like material back there. And so for the last couple of years, I've been trying to reclaim it so it would be able to be used by our children and friends and whatnot. And so one of the things that I've had to do is cut down trees. I've cut down about 10, 12, maybe 15 trees, and, and I've been able to do most of it by myself. And I have to tell you, cutting down a tree is very fun, <laughs> as long as it doesn't hit your arm. But that's another story. So, um, but, but I've taken down these various trees with the help of some of y'all, and, uh, except for about a year ago, there was one tree I wasn't able to take down myself. There was this massive chestnut oak in my backyard. It was huge. The, the trunk, it would take probably three adults to be able to wrap our arms around it. It was over 30 feet tall. And I wanted to bring it down, not because I was afraid that it was going to fall on our house or, or that a limb would fall on a child playing underneath it. I, I wasn't concerned about those things. I wanted to bring it down because it was ugly. And I wanted the space. I wanted to reclaim it and get more sun in our yard. And so because of the size, I called out someone, a tree guy, and he started cutting, and down the tree fell. And I'm glad that we did bring it down, because though to me it didn't look like there was any concern, there was no fear, there was no worry, once we got into the tree, it became very apparent that this tree was diseased and dying and was very weak, because as soon as we got into it, we realized the entirety of the inside of the tree was rotting. This massive tree, it was taller than my house, it was huge, right? It was rotting, and, and the tree guy said it could have come down, you know, we probably had another year or so, but, but it was a danger. Well, so I brought my friend, I have an ar- a friend who's an arborist, I brought him out to my house, and I had him look at the other trees in my yard, because if this tree was dangerous, then who knows what else? And, and I asked him, how could I have known? Just by looking at it, could I have looked at the trunk or the limbs? And he said, well, you know, the trunk probably wouldn't have told you. And the limbs maybe would have made you be suspect about it, but, but actually you, you have to know what you're looking for. An untrained eye would have never seen that this tree was weak and that it was failing. And so he, he walked me over to the, to the stump that was still in the ground, and he said, there, that's how you would have known. You see, he, he pointed to this part of the, the, the stump where, where the spherical shape of the tree was no more. It actually was indented and it was growing in on itself. It wasn't a hole. It was still intact. But, but to my eye, what looked like just this really cool, obscure abnormality in the wood was actually a sign to a trained eye that this tree was failing, that it was becoming weak, that it was rotting. See, you you have to have the trained eye to be able to see these sorts of signs. To my eyes, it looked strong and healthy, but, but to someone who knew what signs to look for, he knew it was a danger. He knew it was weak and it was failing. And in our passage this morning, we're, we're being invited to see with trained eyes the signs that reveal to us weakness and failure as well as strength. To the, to the untrained eye, we may not notice them, but, but as we go through our passage, I want us to see the signs that are pointing to these signals, to these apparent revelations that there is weakness and failing, but that there is also strength. There's failing and weakness on the part of Saul, but there are also signs that point us to the strength of God and are inviting us to put our trust in him. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to look with trained eyes at the signs that are in this passage. 
first that show us of Saul's weakness or of his failing. And we see this beginning in the very first paragraph, this long paragraph that takes up the first eight or so verses. We have Saul being anointed. We have him being instructed to go. And as he goes, we're told that he'll receive three signs, right? Three confirmatory signs of what Saul, excuse me, Samuel has done to him, confirming that Saul is the king. And these three signs are two men will tell him not to worry about the donkeys. Go home. The second sign is that three men will meet him, three with goats, two with loaves of bread, and a skin of wine, and they'll give him two loaves of bread. And then the third sign, he'll go to Gibeath Elohim, and there a spirit of the Lord will come upon him. So this is what Saul is supposed to do, right? This is so far so good. This isn't very hard. Just go to the next place and look for these things, and these things come right? He sees these signs. But notice what Samuel says in verse 7. As he's explaining these signs, he says, now when these signs meet you, when they've come about, the final one, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Do what your hands find to do. Well, this is a Hebrew idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means to do what is within your power to do. But what is Saul supposed to do? What will be in his power? Well, well, in Judges chapter 9, we have the same idiom being used. And in that context, the judge to whom it's being spoken to, it's very clear that the, what he's supposed to do with his hands is take military action. And so what most commentators think is going on here is that what Saul was supposed to do with his hands is to... To, to go to battle, to go to war against the Philistines. And there's a few reasons why we think that that's what's happening. First is the spirit rushes upon Saul. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But he's empowered towards a task, to go to battle against the Philistines, this task that we're told in chapter 9 he would have to do, that the king, the anointed one, was supposed to go to war against the Philistines and deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. And then notice where the place is that the Spirit rushes upon him. This very city, Gibeath Elohim, it's the place where the Philistines have a garrison. And so where the Spirit comes upon Saul is the very place where the enemies of Israel are. And so the expectation would have been that as he is empowered by the Spirit, that he would actually lead men in battle against the Philistines. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Saul fails to capitalize on the Lord's strength. He fails to ex take advantage of the proximity of the Philistine garrison. He fails to act. This is a sign that, that Saul's actually quite weak. That his leadership is failing even from the very beginning. But this isn't the only sign that we see about Saul's failing. If we look at the end of the passage, the very end, we have Samuel calling all of Israel together, right? These different tribes, and they're doing these lots, and he's saying, come together, and I will present to you the king, right? Come together, and you can imagine how it's happening, right? Get ready. Here he comes. You've asked for him. You've prayed for him, and here he is, and where is he? <laughs> 
where is he, right? It's, it's kind of like, wah, wah, you know, like the biggest letdown ever. So where is he? Well, they don't know where he is, so they inquire of the Lord. And in verse 22, he says he has hidden himself among the baggage. Now, do you remember the very first week that we started 1 Samuel? I said that in narrative, we oftentimes have to examine the life of the character or the result of an event to understand the, the ethical quality of the person, whether what they're doing or who they are is good or bad. Do you remember this? And so, so oftentimes in narrative, we're not told directly this was good or this was bad or this was foolish or this was wise. We have to see their lives play out. So what do you think this tells us about Saul? What do you think we're supposed to think about Saul when he's found in the baggage, hiding? Maybe he's humble, right? Maybe he's humble. He doesn't like all the attention. Maybe he's bashful right? He gets a, little, gets a little nervous around people. Maybe he's doing just a little social distance. No, no, he's not doing that. Right? It's none of those things, right? I don't think it's any of those things. I mean, sometimes the clearest understanding is the most obvious. I mean, kids, kids, I want you to think about this. Why is it that someone hides? Assuming they're not playing hide and seek, assuming they're not playing a game, why is it that People hide. Well, they hide because they're scared. I heard someone say it. They hide because they're scared, right? And I think that that's what's happening. That, that Saul, this one who knows he is the anointed king, who knows that he has been called to lead, he's actually timid. It's as though he's trying to flee from the responsibility of being the king. And he has to be dragged from this hiding place amongst the baggage. And we have Samuel's words in verse 24. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Now, I don't think that we're supposed to understand these words as showing that, that Samuel favors Saul. No, I think he's speaking ironically. I think he's speaking as though to say, you see him? Oh yeah, he's handsome. Sure, he's the tallest. He looks like the strongest. He looks the part, but, but do you see him hiding like a child? There is none like him among all the people. Here, O Israel, is your king. You see these signs? These signs that point to Saul's failing. These signs that, that should cause the people to maybe second guess what they've asked for. These signs that should invite them to, to start to wonder, is this the person we should be putting our trust in? That we should be following? But these aren't the only signs in our passage. We have other signs as well. Not just signs of weakness and failing, but we have signs of strength. Signs of strength not on the part of Saul, but signs of strength on the part of God. We see it first with his spirit. The giving of his spirit. Look at verse 10 and following. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And this, this is speaking of Saul. And the spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. And then all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets. The people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? 
Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? So God's spirit rushes upon him. Now, now when you hear that language, God's spirit rushing upon someone, what do you think about? Well, if you've been around the church for any length of time, if you're a believer or you've been coming to church for a while, you probably think in, in New Testament categories, right? That the spirit is the, the one, the, the part of the Godhead who brings about regeneration, right? That, that those who are trusting in Jesus, that those who were once old creatures are now new creations because of the spirit's regenerative work. And that's what we think of, and you should. It's throughout the New Testament, right? That's how we think about it, and, and that is a right way to think about it. But I don't think that that's exactly what's happening here. No, I think something different is occurring here. Yes, Saul is a changed man. We hear that in verse 6, Saul will be turned into another man. But we have to ask, what is this change in regards to? What is this rushing of the Spirit in regards to? And what it's in regards to is Saul having the ability to prophesy and to be empowered to act in a time of crisis. It's the same way that we see the Spirit rushing upon judges in the book of Judges. Twice in chapter 14, Judges 14, and once in chapter 15, a judge is, the Spirit rushes upon them. And why? So that they'd be equipped so that they would be empowered to protect the people. And that's what's happening here. You see, apart from God's help, apart from God's work, Saul would not be able to carry out the duties of protecting the people. And we're going to see him do that next week. But it is God, it is a sign of God's care for his people, a sign of God's protecting of his people, that he would impart the spirit to Saul, at least for this moment. And so we see God's strength through the giving of his spirit, but we also see God's strength, excuse me, through his word. His word, and, and what we see about his word are a few things. Now, now when I taught um, homiletics in St. Louis, we would always tell our students, uh, don't have subpoints to your subpoints, but I'm going to break that rule. <laughs> so the subpoint is his word. He shows his strength through his word, but, but what we see about his word are three things. First, that it's trustworthy. His word is trustworthy. We see this in the fact that the promises are fulfilled, right? I mean, Samuel gives Saul these promises. You will know that what has happened is of God because you will see these three things occur. And did you notice how specific they were? And you couldn't just dismiss these as coincidence. Two men are going to show up and say the donkeys have been found. Three more people are going to show up, right? And they're going to have these sorts of things like goats and and bread and skins of wine and then you're going to go to this other place and then the spirit like like this isn't coincidence and so we can see that god's word is trustworthy it is trustworthy that that not just this part of god's word but all of god's word we can believe we can rest upon we can know is true his word is trustworthy but also his word has authority his word has authority. Though Saul is the one who will be the king, and he will have authority and power within Israel, he is subservient to God's word. Did you notice? I mean, it is Samuel the prophet who is the bestower of God's word who is directing the king. 
It is through God's word that he is leading, right? Go here and go there and stop there and rest and go say, the, right? It is God's word that has authority even over the king. And we see this explicitly at the very end in verse 25, when Saul is instructed by Samuel about the duties of the kingship. And so if you remember from a couple weeks ago, I talked about Deuteronomy 17 and the importance of Deuteronomy 17 as being the law of the king. I think that's what Saul, excuse me, Samuel is speaking about now. He's presenting the law of the king before Samuel and before Saul as a way of telling them what Saul is expected to do. That his rule and his reign is in subjection to God. Now, if you've been with us for even a week now, you've heard this before. This seems to be a common theme in the book of 1 Samuel, doesn't it? Again and again and again. It feels like every single chapter and every other verse almost, it seems like we're being told that no matter who the leader is, whether it's the priest Eli or whether it's the prophet Samuel or whether it's the king Saul, whoever the leader is, God is the one who has authority. God is the one who has power. It is God who reigns over all of them. It comes up again and again and again like a broken record. And I can't help but think that the reason it shows up again and again and again is because Israel and we need to be reminded of that. Because it's easy for us to be like Israel and to look to other people to put our trust in to have authority over us, to direct us in the way that we are to go. But, but is the, even though God has given authority within our community and he has placed people in our lives to lead and direct every leadership and every piece of authority and every person who directs comes under the direction of God. He is the king over all. So we see by God's word that he has authority. But also his word is a sign of his commitment. It's his commitment. This is the last of the sub-sub points. <laughs> it's his commitment. Not commitment just to reign over his people, but his commitment to his people. And we see this commitment by the fact that God tells his people about their sin. Did you see it in verses 17 and following? Samuel calls the people together. And he says to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So God reminds them of all that he has done. And he returns, he returns to the, the exodus, the great act of redemption in the Old Testament, of how God delivered his people and rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh and the land of slavery. And he did it simply because he loved them and cared for them. And how do the people respond? They rejected him. And God's reminding them of this. But why? Like, how does this show God's commitment to his people? Well, it's out of his commitment for them. It's out of his love for them that he reminds them 
that what they are doing is not in keeping with the grace that they have received. You see, it would be unloving of God not to point out their sin. It would be unloving of God not not to redirect them, not to invite them back to repentance, because that's what sin should do. When we see our sin, it should lead us to repentance. God cares about his people. He is committed to them too much to let them continue to wander without telling them what they have done. It's not loving to ignore it. It would be hateful to. But God's committed to his people. He loves his people too much not to tell them of their sin. He loves his people of whom he calls his heritage. Did you see that in verse 1? Samuel says to Saul, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Do you hear what Samuel calls the people of God? God's heritage. This language is getting at the permanency of the Lord's possession. It's a possession that, that can't be transferred to another, that that is what God is calling his people. But it doesn't just end with the people of Israel. It's not just the people of Israel, the people of the day of Saul and Samuel that are called his heritage, because we know in Psalm chapter 2, a psalm about the coming Messiah, a psalm that is royal and has prophetic utterances within it, that the promised king who would come after Saul and would be of the line of David, this king who would be called God's son, we're told that God says to him, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, the king to come, the son that will rule by God's word, who has authority and commitment, we know that that son is Jesus, and that those who trust in him are his possession, that we are his heritage. That, that God's people doesn't end with just the Old Testament people of Israel or a small little plot of land in the Middle East, but it extends to the nations, that the nations are Christ's heritage, that you and I, that those who are trusting in him, we are his heritage. And that's what he calls us. That it's, it's almost too little of a thing. That's what we're told other places in Scripture. It is almost too little of a thing that Christ would only rule over a small bit of people and a small bit of land because the nations are his. We are his. And for all those who trust in him, in his strength to defeat sin and death, for all those who have had their sins revealed and have repented in turn, that we are his heritage. So God shows his strength towards us by showing his commitment to us. So what do we do with this? I mean, what does this mean for us? Well, this passage, it's inviting us to consider where we've put our trust. This passage is inviting us to see, to see the, those things that we initially thought of were as being strong and healthy, that, that we are to see them with closer inspection, that, that really they are weak and frail. 
that we are to not put our trust in the things that will fail or the things that are weak, but instead we are to put our trust in the Lord. The Lord who all signs point to as being the one who is unshakable, who is firm, who has no signs of imperfection or weakness or failing, but, but is strong. Friends, that is what we are to do. This is how we respond. The signs are pointing to it. To turn our eyes to the Lord, to rest and trust in him. This one who is strong and has shown his strength in his son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And that you are our king and our God. You are our Lord over all. And so we pray and ask that you would help us to turn our eyes towards you. That we would put our trust in you. For you are our God. And in you, we know that there is peace and there is rest. In you, we know that there is strength. And so let us rest in your strength and trust in your son. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.